0: Good morning and welcome to Episode 1, Season 5, Defender of Children 2. My name is Monty. I'm your host and author. Let's begin this journey with Chapter 1. It was a Tuesday night. The place was packed, inside and out. The music was loud. The air thick with smoke. The sound of a popular local band with a young, hot country artist with his ball cap on backwards, country boy good looks and big smile leading the way, and the ocean as their backdrop. Just another night. In the town of Wilmington, North Carolina, home of UNCW, plenty of restaurants, bars, coffee shops and parks, but also highly rated public schools, historic downtown, and a reputation as a wonderful place for young professionals to raise their families. Another reason many chose to live and visit the area, and that was the miles of beaches, which included Carolina, Kerr, and Riceville Beach. For those that loved the water and all it had to offer, Wilmington was for them as well. Many visited and never left, and that's exactly what happened to Leonard Royal. He was a regular as regular could be at the local hangouts, year-round, not just during the busy season of the summer. So he was known by regulars and staff, but also by many of the vacationers that call Wimmington their home away from home. That made it especially hard and embarrassing for everyone involved when the bar had become deathly still, as the man they had affectionately called Lenny was being handcuffed and escorted out by 11 men in suits with guns beneath their jackets. You could hear the ocean waves hitting the rocks on the other side of the two-lane road behind the small stage as the defeated man lowered his head and began an awfully long walk towards the waiting vehicle out front. It wasn't until the van was well on its way that the music began to play again and conversations started back up at many of the tables. The talk was now a little different than a few minutes ago, and they would each have a story to tell that night and the next day When the news would be all over and they would talk about it at water coolers and in break rooms all around the country the second defender of children had just been captured the killer watched with excitement that of an eight-year-old at his first professional baseball game he took in every nuance every movement of each player it was dark but the street lights made for great shadowing if it had been a movie it would have been perfect the light chill in the air the cops smoking off to the side And a small group gathered around the perimeter which he made sure he blended in with just another onlooker wanting to see one of the most wanted men in america taken off the streets glorious 13 people had been found guilty by the system 13 people had been released into society because their prisons were too full and because they promised to go to therapy and be better citizens 13 did not get the chance to lie to hurt to destroy the innocence of children Thirteen met their maker at the hands of the Defender of Children. Miles Humphreys has been dead for three plus years, but the last eight months, someone claiming to be the Defender of Children, had picked up his cause in a much more efficient manner, wanting to make sure all children predators know they are taking their lives in their own hand each time they give into their vile side. Tonight, it would seem those on the side of evil would celebrate with the authorities, as the man known as the Defender of Children was once again taken out of the equation chapter two the call came in about 2 a.m eastern standard time a call that was unexpected as any call would have been at that time in the morning sean had been asleep for about four hours and was deep into what he could only remember was a solidly good dream sitting on the edge of the bed while joe rubbed his back he took a few notes after gaining a small sense of awakenedness if that's the word what he had heard from his friend had snapped him out of any kind of sleep or dream and into some kind of half-sleep action mode with the general information he needed he hung up the phone took Joe's hand kissed it and said i'm sorry you're not gonna be real happy with me on the way to the airport he thought about every word his friend had said trying to make any kind of sense anything he came up with nothing maybe kenny would have better luck they'd be together within an hour and then spend a short time on a private plane before landing in wilmington By Sean's calculation, they would arrive in time to have breakfast with one of the East Coast's best defense attorneys, find out why one of his closest friends and former partners had been arrested, and how they could help, and then be at the police station in time to bail him out first thing in the morning. Kenny still looked the part of a model as he approached the Chevy Silverado Sean was waiting for him in. They would leave Kenny's Audi A4 near the office and take his truck out to the plane. It had become part of their normal routine when they traveled and traveling had become routine for the pair over the last several years. After the Defender of Children case, then the whole mess with Sean being shot and women murdering their abusive husbands, the pair had decided it was time, or maybe it was decided for them, that they should take advantage of the 15 minutes of fame that they had. So, with the support of their families, they had both given their notices, cleaned out their retirement accounts, sold most of their belongings, and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. A great place to start their private investigation firm, which now supported 18 full-time employees, six interns, Sean and his family, Kenny and his family. They had a fleet of four Silverado trucks, two Suburbans, and, of course, Kenny's Audi. And last but not least, the slightly used Challenger 300, eight-passenger private jet. Yes, business had been good for the pair, and they had lots of people to thank. Leonard was one of them, so they dropped everything and headed to Wilmington. That was a no-brainer. Sean had sent three texts while waiting on Kenny. Each said the same thing, but in different words to different people. I'll be out of pocket until further notice. I will only be taking calls from Miss Shelley Williams, and any case will be new cases will be directed to Mark Stewart. First of all, he had no idea how long this would take, and his friend's life was at stake, and nothing was more important at the moment. Two, Miss Shelley Williams was his gatekeeper. Right and left hand, it would only call if it was absolutely necessary. Third, Mark was capable and would represent the company well, and had been looking for a way to show how he could handle more responsibility. Kenny tossed his bag in the back, smiled his big smile, and said, Truck's dirty. Didn't you take the time to stop and clean it this morning? He knew how to get under Sean's skin. Sean put the truck in gear, foot on the gas pedal before Kenny's rear was even in the seat. Neither would be considered morning people, especially in the middle of the night. Chapter 3 The news feeds could not get enough of the coverage, from experts to high school teachers to neighbors, and the killer even watched one interview with someone that said they had sat next to the Defender of Children at the bar one night last week. He loved every minute of it. Thirteen had been the number. It was the number that made the most sense, the number of truly vile human beings that preyed on young people that needed to be removed from society for good at the hands of the Defender of Children. Then, once he was captured, the killings would stop. He was smart enough to know there'd be other offenders that may need to be dealt with along the path that would have to be considered at a later date and on an individual basis. This was one mission, and it had been successful as far as he was concerned. It was nothing personal, he thought, as he watched Leonard being booked into custody for the 30th time. It never got old, to be honest. He really should take a video and put it on his phone. Leonard was a means to an end. But it had been so fun and easy to set him up his depression his past his loss his passwords lack of home security the drinking the list could go on and on the cause had been noble and to the killer if one cop who probably had done enough bad things over the years had spent some time in jail then it all worked out in the end while the state did still have the death penalty it had not been used in almost 20 years so there was a better chance the old man would die in prison with good health care three meals a day, and all the cable shows and puzzles he could take. Leonard was waiting for his friends to come and give him some news, any news. No one had said a word to him since his arrest. He had been put in a cell alone, a courtesy given to him as a retired detective, and he appreciated the gesture. But no contact since, and he was getting a little crazy. What would Kenny and Sean think? Was there any way they could think that he had done any of this? Could they? He had been understanding of the original Defender of Children, hadn't he? He had expressed those sentiments out loud. Had he? Did he not? He wasn't sure. It had been a while. As he sat in his small cell and contemplated his most recent life choices, he realized he was such an easy target. The perfect target, really, for anyone that was willing to put in the time, bare minimum of effort. It would be interesting to see how good of a job they had done framing him. And even more to see how his friends could undo the mess he had somehow been complicit in creating. With his eyes closed and his head back, he thought about what had happened over the last few days. Then he always thought back to Courtney. Leonard had loved and lost, but nothing affected him like the loss of his daughter. He firmly closed his eyes even harder, wishing for the millionth time he could just go back and save her. He would give up anything and everything. Chapter 4 Nearly eight months before the night Leonard Royal sat in the jail cell accused of being the defender of children, the plan had been hatched. Hatched because of a news program late one Sunday night, watched by millions of people, but obsessed over by at least one. A well-done documentary on the overcrowded prison system in America, and the toll it was taking on sex offenders and their sentencing. From time served to suspended sentences, many were back on the street with little to no consequences, because there was just nowhere to house them. The system was essentially overflowing, and the authorities, those in charge, had run out of ideas how to handle the problem. So, instead of letting 18-year-old men that had been in prison for decades for smoking pot when they were 20 and have caused no problems in the system out, the smart folks in charge decided to let those that wanted to hurt children walk free because they would go to therapy and promise to never do it again. There were example after example of offenders that were either released early or spent little to no time in jail, and then committed horrendous crimes. He had never even gotten a speeding ticket before he had the thought that eventually led to the crimes he committed. But like a worm slowly working its way into his brain, the ideas and plans did exactly that. And in the end, he was convinced that they could and would work, and only the criminals and one man would be hurt. The countless children and their families would be saved. The trade-off in any terms acceptable. So, plans were made. Time was spent on research. Moves were made. More research. Money spent. Lies were told. And after 12 weeks, it was time for the first murder. His name was Walter Willis. He was 38 years old. White. From a good home. Two loving parents. Normal to all that knew him. All were surprised when he was arrested on charges of child pornography and attempting to have sex with a child under the age of 12 when he tried to meet what he thought was an 11-year-old boy at a local park, but it turned out to be an undercover officer waiting for him. His family hired the best attorney who claimed he was under tremendous stress at work and that he had never, ever done anything like this and would never do it again, and the judge had released him on his own recognizance. The system at work. The killer had hundreds of files to choose from, but Walter Willis's eyes told him he was a predator, and the ease with which he had gotten away with his first act made him sure he would try to do it again. That is why he was first. Also, fate would have it his family was on vacation in a villa only six blocks from where Leonard Royal had retired. Fate could be a beautiful thing. On a Thursday, the killer spent the day watching Walter spend the day with his family, first around the backyard in the pool, then out on the town. A nice dinner in the same backyard, and finally, around 9.30, he headed out in a little white convertible, sports car the family must keep at the house, just for such occasion. He'd only driven about 10 miles, until he was at the local mall. The two entered at the same entrance, 20 yards apart, not really going in any particular direction, aimlessly around, actually. Finally, Walter approached a group of young boys. The killer could not hear what was being said, but he could tell it didn't go the way that he wanted it to. The boys laughed and turned and walked away, leaving Walter unhappy. The killer caught up with the boys and confirmed what the conversation had been about and then followed Walter back to the car. Walter headed down to the seedier side of town where he picked up a young man walking down the street. They spoke for a brief moment. Then the door opened. The man got in the car and they drove off. The killer followed. The beach parking was empty that night so he killed his lights as he followed the sports car into the empty lot. He did not plan to give them any time for anything to get started before he approached, so, with speed, he was upon the convertible, had Walter by the hair, pulled him from the car, threw him to the pavement, and proceeded to beat him with a baseball bat. The other man exited the car and ran, never looking back. Smart. The killer finished, took the note from his pocket, stuffed it in the dead man's mouth, and left the scene the first of many to come chapter five the killing had been easy for him and he was ready for the next one as soon as the first was over truth be told it wasn't because he was evil no on the contrary every child mother father grandparent that he saw he saw someone that he may have saved from sadness of losing someone close to them that is why he was doing what he was doing he hoped no He knew if he had the chance to speak with Leonard Royal one day, he would make him understand. His Defender of Children was different than the original, and that was okay. Everyone knew Miles Humphreys died, so he wasn't trying to make folks believe he was the original. So there would be no nude bodies, nope, no way, no how. Also, his note was simple, three letters, D-O-C. Now he did like the baseball bat, and he did prefer a Louisville slugger, but he also kept a handgun close. A shotgun handy and a couple of long blades within reach at all times he believed in being prepared also unlike miles he had friends he believed everyone needed friends to help them along the way and his victim number two had lots of friends as well his name was adam russell 52 years old married four kids six grandchildren deacon at his church founder of his bowling league dirtbag online predator That had been caught in two different stings by local cops and released both times because of who he knew. His end came on a Sunday night when he was called back to the church because someone thought they had left the lights on in the fellowship hall and he was the closest one with the key to the building. When he arrived the killer followed him into the church through the sanctuary and into the fellowship hall that was dark by the way and then attacked leaving him there bloody and beaten with screenshots of his online conversations with underage children so there'd be no doubt. And if those were taken from the scene, others were mailed to his family and to the precinct and the local newspaper. There you go, sicko. After the second, the news broke of the Defender of Children being back in action. How could it not? The rumors and theories flew. But at no time did anyone with any authority reach out to Kenny, Costco, or Sean Trammell. They were old news from the first case. Made their names and had moved on. It was time for new blood, new opportunities, Besides, they were in private sector now, and the police did not need their help. So, the killings went on. The news would cover them from a distance, a distant lens. They were predators, after all. The police really were trying to find the killer, because he was making them look bad. But there were those, like the first time, that had empathy for the killer. So, the stories went from page one to page six, and so on. That was until the fifth case. The killer had thought he had done so good doing his background work. There was nothing in his file that would have told him to walk away from this one. Nothing that would have alerted him to the attention it would draw or the scandal it would open. The pressure it would put on the police force, the captain, detectives, his friends. It was, as some may say, a dumpster fire of the greatest magnitude. The dead man was Mark Thirst, 33, fitness instructor, originally from Spain, but went to college in California. And then spent time up and down the East Coast. Turned out he was also the personal trainer for one Lieutenant Theodore Benjamin III, the head of the DCMA, or Defense Contract Management Agency, a very important agency in Washington, D.C., with an annual budget of nearly $1.5 billion. When Mark was murdered, it was unfortunately in a condo owned, paid for, and entitled to the aforementioned Ted Benjamin and the rumors soared like the rockets the agency he led secured to protect this great nation. It was messy, in the messiest kind of way. Lieutenant General Theodore Benjamin III was considered by many to be the next Presidential Party candidate. From the outside, it appeared he and his wife of 30-plus years had the perfect marriage, the perfect children, three, the perfect grandchildren, seven. Just the perfect life. And those across the aisle, or those that just didn't like to see anyone happy, were quick to jump on the rumors. Speculation. It was bad. Those that dug did not have to dig deep. The condo had been hidden from his wife, but not well. The funds had been pulled from various sources, not illegally, but not up front like you would think in a thirty-year marriage. She had no idea he had a personal trainer, let alone a condo that he spent nights at when he was supposed to be away on business trips. Dumpster fire. His friends were not happy. Like he somehow knew this, even though the guy's wife didn't, and more importantly. That he could go back and fix it. Well, he couldn't. Chapter 6 It was hard to get past the ordeal. There was almost not a number 6. The killer took some time off, let the heat die down again, let Ted make his speeches, and let some other news cycles take the headlines like it always does. Then it began again, and in the end, it was the children that mattered. Number 6 added a new little twist. It had been decided that on this particular kill leonard's old truck would be used not one similar but his actual truck that way any video witnesses or the like would be showing describing his actual truck how lovely so the killer had followed him one night he had done this numerous times so he knew leonard would leave the keys above the visor in the old chevy once the lights were all out in an hour passed he worked his way up past the weather-worn wooden fence That needed much love and slowly backed the truck out of the driveway leonard's room was at the back side of the house he was hard of hearing at this stage and for an older truck it was relatively quiet the sixth was a female the only female on the list she was evil as any of the other men however her name was sherry no last name you could find her mo was to find young girls lure them away from their friends yards wherever and then sell them to whatever creep she could find for whatever money she could get, no questions asked. She had been accused of these acts on numerous occasions, but somehow kept getting back on the streets. The last time, the eight-year-old girl, the eight-year-old girl had been out looking for her lost puppy when Sherry took her off the street. A neighbor intervened just in time, but what if there was no neighbor next time? Sherry was a suspect in at least nine other disappearances of young girls, but still, she was free to roam the streets, with parents having no clue what lurked nearby. So the killer watched from the red truck and waited. He did not have to catch them in the act. They were not going to jail, or, before a judge after all, he was there to administer their punishment. That was all. Sherry was predictable. Why wouldn't she be? She was invincible. The system would it. it didn't care about putting her away. So she blatantly walked the streets of Southport near Cape Fear without fear. She was a large woman that liked color, so she wasn't hard to follow. She wore her long hair, up in a bun. She was tall, probably close to 5'10", and loud. She wanted everyone to know she was around. When detectives came snooping later, and they would, everywhere, everywhere, had been on this street at this time, headed towards the park full of small kids. He watched in amazement at how she glided down the street, how she appeared to own the neighborhood. It was her office. About 20 minutes at the park, another 30 at the corner deli, she headed back up the street to her modest home. He had watched her take her two dogs out earlier. He hoped she would have to do the same thing again before bedtime. An hour later, the porch light came on. Sherry and the two dogs came bouncing down the porch and headed up the street looking for whatever the right spot would be to take care of their business. While they did that, he slipped up the stairs and straight into the home. No one felt the need to lock a door anymore. Why would they? She would be right back. The first blow was to the base of her neck. It took the woman by surprise, took her straight to the floor. The poor dogs were frightened to death and ran to their beds as fast as their little legs would take them. The second and third blows were to the torso, and the last was a fatal blow to the head. He was not into speeches, wise or the likes. It was all business. When it was done, he grabbed a couple of the dog treats off the counter and went and found the two scared pups, then went and found a couple pieces of jewelry he would use later, then gone. No pets were harmed in the killing of this child predator. Let's end today's episode right there. Thank you for joining me. I hope you liked the beginning of our new journey. Defender of Children 2. Have a great day.